Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing refuge recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your refuge recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes. We're on the second factor of the Eightfold Path. Last week we went over the first factor of understanding. And uh, this week we'll move on to the second factor, intention. And uh, I think we're about five or six weeks into this series, and they should all be recorded on the YouTube channel if you would like to... Um, check in on YouTube. I don't see any. Is anybody on YouTube? Looks like everybody's on Instagram and Facebook. Looks like we're not on YouTube tonight for some reason. So tonight we're just on the Facebook and the Instagram channel. Uh, for some reason, the uh, YouTube channel is not letting us go live. We will get that fixed as soon as we can. But welcome to everybody tuning in on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook. Misty, thank you for that. Maybe if I put my microphone on it, it will actually work better. Is that better? It helps if you actually wear the microphone. Chapter 6, page 40, maybe page 41, page 41. Can you hear now? Is everybody um, seeing some things about the sound better? Okay. Chapter six, intention. We renounce greed, hatred, and delusion. We train our minds to meet all pain with compassion and all pleasure with non-attached appreciation. We cultivate generous, kind, and compassionate wishes for all living beings. We practice honesty and humility and live with integrity. We intend to meet all pain with compassion and all pleasure with non-attached appreciation. To be generous and kind to all living beings, to be honest and humble 
and to live with integrity and to practice non-harming. Our intentions are always based on our understanding. Therefore, it is important first and foremost to understand cause and effect. Wise intention means that we take full responsibility for all our actions and the consequences of our actions. In this factor of the path, we are asked to intentionally align our actions with kindness, compassion, generosity, forgiveness, and understanding. Intentions are the goals or aims of our actions. They are the reasons behind our actions. Having learned the truths of existence, we must now align our thoughts and intentions towards the goal of recovery and freedom from suffering. This consists of redirecting our thoughts and intentions from the negative karma-producing intentions like greed, hatred, and delusion to the positive intentions of kindness, compassion, generosity, forgiveness, appreciation, and understanding. In order to recover, we must aim our life's energy and actions towards being free from all forms of hatred, ill will, aversion, and wishing harm on ourselves or others. We must also be free from the greed for pleasure, which is clearly the cause of most of our addictions. Greed is desire out of control. Our intention doesn't need to be free from desire itself, but only free from the extremes of craving, clinging, attachment, and greed. Wanting something is not a problem, but having to have something is. It's a setup for suffering. Intention plays a central role in the spiritual life. All our volitional actions come from our intentions. The actions that are at the heart of karma, which literally means action. Most of us misunderstand karma. We think that it refers to the result. Something bad happens and we say, that was my karma, or that was her karma. Actually, karma is action itself. The result is the karmic fruit. And that karmic fruit, the outcome of an action, comes from our intention, not the act itself. The result, for instance, if we accidentally kill an insect by walking down the street, there is no negative karma created because it was not our intention to kill. But when we volitionally kill insects because we are afraid of them or because we hate them, we commit an intentional act which bears a negative karmic fruit. This is an important distinction. Karmic results come from our positive or negative intentions, not from the actions themselves. From this perspective, a person can even harm or take life accidentally, that is, without negative intention, and not have karmic repercussions. There is much confusion about this in our culture. For instance, there is a saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. From a Buddhist perspective, however, this, of course, cannot be true. But the saying comes from the commonly used excuse, 
that wasn't my intention, or I had only good intention, but it was a real mess anyway. This is like the addict who hurts everyone around him or her and then says, it wasn't my intention. It may be true that the intention was not maliciously hurtful, but if we look at the true motivations and intentions, they were certainly not wise or skillful. The intention of the addict is usually a selfish craving for pleasure or to escape pain. From the intention of self-serving, often fear-based and dishonest actions comes from all comes all of the harm that the addict causes. So he or she is fully responsible for all of the intentional actions that have resulted in harming others. Another perhaps more simple example is when we say something trying to be funny, but it offends someone who is listening. Perhaps we tell a racist joke or say any number of things that some might find funny while others only take offense. We are still fully responsible for our intentions. In humor, our intention may be a selfish motivation to get attention and some lack of mindfulness that we are say of that what we are saying may offend someone. But this is not karma free. We certainly do not intend to be kind, generous, caring, or compassionate when we say mean things just because they might get a laugh. We are often intentionally being mean. The road to hell and very often relapse or perhaps relapse and then hell is not paved with good intentions, quite the opposite. If we bring mindfulness to our motivations and intentions, we will see more and more how we create suffering or end suffering. This is not to say that actions that come from wise and skillful intentions never cause harm. There are certainly cases where harm will arise even totally from even totally wholesome intentions. For instance, when the enlightened Buddha began to teach that a higher power was not necessary for spiritual practice and awakening, many people were offended and very angry with him, as they may be with us. But the Buddha's intention was one of compassion and care. He only wanted to guide people on a truly transformative path. He saw all the delusions that religious people held and wanted to warn them that they were headed down a dead end. He spoke out of wisdom, truth, and compassion. There are two levels of intention. The first is simply having the appropriate intention. This means training our mind in thoughts that are free from craving and ill will. It means trying to think about the welfare of all beings. This sort of intention may be as simple as paying attention to our motives and abstaining from actions that are motivated by greed, hatred, or delusion. For example, when we are angry and lashing out at someone, that is obviously an aversive reaction, an intentionally harmful act. As recovering addicts, we must be very careful about our intentions. We have lived lives of intentionally escaping pain and creating pleasure. The habitual pattern that we have set up is to indulge every craving that arises. As we abstain from the behaviors and substances of our addictions, 
the intention to avoid pain will still be in place until we have trained our minds and bodies in tolerance and understanding. This will come in time through our meditative practice. In the beginning of our recovery, we will have to acknowledge that our intentions are often unwise and based on old patterns of craving pleasure and avoiding pain. We may never get completely free from these instinctual drive-based feelings and intentions. We will, however, become more and more skilled at not taking them personally or acting from the unwise intentions of greed or hatred. Instead, we respond wisely. The second level of intention goes beyond simply responding wisely to negative thoughts. Here we begin to intentionally cultivate positive thoughts. Thoughts of loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, generosity, patience, tolerance, mercy, and forgiveness. We attempt to use our mental faculties to think about, to consider, to reason, to reflect, and to apply spiritual principles. We intentionally train our minds to think thoughts that are focused on spiritual matters rather than on material ones. This second or higher level of thought is the proper use of intentional thinking. Most of the time our minds are preoccupied with how to get our next fix, or at least how to avoid pain or failure. On this higher level of spiritual thought, we intentionally think about generosity and compassion. We ask ourselves, how can I help? Or what is the kind thing to do in this circumstance? Or how can I best express my appreciation and gratitude? And when someone offends us, we turn the mind towards compassion, acknowledging the pain, and then thinking about what it must be like to be in the mind state of the person who has offended us. We remain mindful and vigilant about what is going on in our minds. What are we thinking? What are our intentions? The first level of intention involves practicing non-harming. It is simply damage control. But this damage control is the key in the recovery process. For addicts to maintain abstinence and continue to recover, they will have to align their core conscious motivations with non-harming. Although this may, may take some time and constant vigilance, eventually it will become more and more natural. All who strive to have more positive intentions and actions report an increased level of happiness, contentment, and well-being. When we are happy, we are more likely to maintain recovery. The second level involves intentionally using our minds to break free from suffering and dissatisfaction. In this higher aspect of intention, we use our minds. We, in fact, train our minds in the practice of meditation, reflecting on impermanence and how addiction and grasping create suffering. So part of the intentional practice is to overcome identification with negative thoughts through renunciation. When we let go of or renounce ill will and the satisfying of craving, we cut off suffering at its root 
causes. Renunciation is not about pushing something away. It is about letting go. It's facing the fact that certain things cause us pain and they cause other people pain. As addicts, we know this better than most. Renunciation is a commitment to let go of the things that create suffering. It is founded on the intention to stop hurting ourselves or others. For example, when we realize that our craving for pleasure and hatred of pain has become an addiction to drugs and alcohol, we renounce all forms of participation in intoxication. By letting go of drugs and booze, we are left with the raw emotions and fears that had been fueling the addictions. But by facing the aversion to the fear and, and fear of those emotions and the craving for the insensibility of intoxication, we come to understand that the craving and addiction were mostly in our minds and that we have the ability to choose one moment at a time not to run away from pain by drowning it in false pleasure. Eventually, it becomes clear that, as the Buddha taught, pain is not the enemy, but just another given aspect of life. When we accept the inevitability of unpleasant experience, we become willing to tolerate pain and establish a more constructive relationship to pain. In this sense, pain can be seen as being similar to fire. Fire is a natural and useful thing. It heats our homes and cooks our food. But if handled inappropriately, it can also burn the house to the ground. Pain is also useful. It's a part of our survival instinct. It tells us when our bodies are in danger or hungry or cold. This works out okay when you can just turn on the AC and cool down. But the survival instinct also knows that too much pain will kill us. So it meets most unpleasant experiences with aversion, fear, and craving for them to go away. And when the pain we experience is emotional or chronic, out of control, the craving for it to go away begins to burn us, consume us with hatred and resentment. Aversion to pain is natural phenomena. However, if we have a wise relationship to the mind, it is not a problem at all. Thus, it is not about pushing these thoughts and feelings away or pretending we don't experience them. It is about training the mind to not let the fire burn us. That is renunciation. We have the choice to no longer stick our hands in the flames. Having a positive intention is a protection against relapse and a life of miserable addiction. We will eventually come to realize that acting out our hatred only causes more hatred. Picking up the burning ember of ill will to throw at our enemy burns us before it burns them. Likewise, when we pick up the substance or behavior that allows us to temporarily avoid the pain, we play with fire. It may feel warm and fuzzy at first, but it will eventually burn us to the core.
perhaps most important, we must relax and realize that recovery comes with time. What is true here and now is that we have finally found a secure and reliable refuge. We are now on the path, however gradual it may be, that will lead to a full recovery. Learning to cultivate the right intentions and thoughts is one of the most important aspects of our recovery. This perspective will unfold with practice. Simply thinking about it isn't enough. We must practice it. The redirection of our intention comes more alive when we develop the moral and ethical practices of non-harming that follow the next factors of the path. With the gathering of the attention in the formal practice of mindfulness meditation, our mind gets concentrated and our awareness penetrates the truth of what is happening in the here and now. We directly experience and understand the impermanent and dissatisfactory nature of our negative thoughts and we begin to see that they are not as personal as we thought. You'll remember that wisdom, the first level of the Eightfold Path, is composed of understanding and intention. It is said that trying to comprehend understanding and intention without ethical conduct and the training in meditation, the final two levels of the path, is like trying to row a boat across a river without untying it from the dock. It is like trying to row upstream without any oars. Those who try will just get swept away by their addictive tendencies, confusion, ill will, and self-serving tendencies. So that's the uh, writing, the book, on the second factor of the full path. I'll share a few reflections, but mostly interested in interacting with those of you who are um, live watching this. So if any questions have already arisen, any, any thoughts about this, any um, experience that you've had with how your uh, intentions, how you respond, so what's happening in your mind, thoughts and feelings? How has it shifted? As I reflect on my own process of recovery, um, when I came into recovery, my intention was to have as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. If, if you asked me, my conscious... Uh, drives and intentions where I, I just I didn't want to I didn't want to feel pain and the drugs and uh, booze and behaviors helped me escape from the pain uh, I wanted to experience pleasure I wanted I wanted some sort of uh, ease and freedom and and uh, my temporary periods of intoxication provided that but I came to the place in my own life, like all of us have, where the suffering uh, and the pain and the consequences and the guilt and remorse and, and shame and self-hatred were so much stronger. The suffering was so much stronger 
than than any ability to escape. But my intentions were not positive. They were not wholesome. They were not skillful. I didn't know. Uh, my my intention was greed based. My intention was hatred based. It was it was self centered, uh, delusional. And it wasn't until I got sober, started meditating, started studying and practicing Buddhism that I even considered trying to have generosity, trying to be kind, trying to be forgiving towards myself and others and asking for forgiveness, the humility. All of that to me was new. I know this isn't true for everyone. Some of you maybe actually did have some positive and some spiritual intentions even when you were in active addiction. Um, I feel like for me, I didn't really have any positive intentions. I learned all of the uh, way to be, how to train my mind, um, the first level of how to respond to all of the negativity in my mind, the second level of how to actually think positive thoughts, train my mind to, to reflect, to uh, all of that happened for me as part of my recovery. So I'm curious to hear from you if you'd like to interact. Um, what's this section of the path like for you? One more thing, and I see a couple questions coming in on Facebook. Um, remember that the eightfold path are eight spokes on a wheel. Every spoke needs our intentional, needs our attention, needs our, it's all a practice. All of it is a practice. Mindfulness is a practice. Concentration is a practice. The effort that we put into renunciation around how we communicate, how we behave, uh, livelihood, all of these are practices. And understanding and intention, these first two factors of the path, are practices. So, uh, of course, we don't have perfect intentions, but we... Um, try to practice more being more positive and and developing wiser intentions and intentions that are free from greed free from hatred free from delusion and the positive uh, cultivating generosity kindness and compassion honesty and humility living with integrity so let's have some dialogue um Robert asks, when it comes to not causing harm, who comes first, you or another? Does compassion, when does compassion become enabling? Um, it's hard, Robert, it's a great question. It's a difficult question to answer because I feel like uh, different situations would have us uh, triage differently. We would prioritize sometimes, um, like if we've built up a uh, a tolerance and, and a mercy and a compassion, sometimes it's easier for us to practice some renunciation um, and, and some compassion when the other person isn't able to, so maybe we prioritize their, their needs. Um, but it's a great question uh, when does compassion become enabling? And 
again, it's a hard question to answer uh, and it's very specific to the situation. I don't think I can say it's it's always like this or it's always like that. But it's just, you know, Robert, I, what I want to say to you and to everyone is that these are important questions to ask. I don't think I have the answer, uh, but it's a question I'm asking myself a lot too. Is this a compassionate thing to do or is it enabling? You know, the, the typical example of like um, uh, giving money to someone on the street. Um, is it compassionate? Is it generous and compassionate to give? Um, or are we enabling uh, somebody's addiction? Um, I know I, sometimes when I've been traveling in Asia and in India, or there is actually um, pamphlets and, and flyers um, starting to be put up in some of the tourist places that said, don't give to the children who are begging on the streets, because giving to the children who are begging on the streets is um, enabling, uh, they're run by a kind of organized crime situation. Um, many of you have seen a Slumdog Millionaire and there's some truth to that situation in, in parts of India where um, you wanna you feel like, oh, my intention is to be generous, my intention is to be kind and, and compassionate. But then if you look deeper, you say, oh, in this situation, if I give, it's enabling, it's um, actually causing harm. And so sometimes not giving uh, is a more compassionate thing to do, uh, is a, a more wise thing to do. Christine is talking about her process. She says, I notice that the thoughts as they enter my consciousness and I try to observe the thoughts without judgment. I notice the emotions that arise and the thoughts. And if the emotion does not align with my highest good, I lovingly release it. I'm not always successful, but I'm always practicing. And then expressing some gratitude for the wisdom and guidance. Uh, direction and you know that that just sounds just right to me that that's what we're trying to do our intention is to be mindful enough to see what's happening in our minds what thoughts what are feelings and that just that inquiry what's my intention here what's my aspiration what's my motivation is this in line with where I actually want to go with the the happiness that I seek the freedom that I seek um, and then sometimes it's quite clear, like, no, this is a self-centered, fear-based thought. And rather than letting it turn into an action, I like the way that you put it, Christina, uh, lovingly release it. And, you know, the, the good news, of course, is that whatever has arisen, arose, uh, is impermanent. So all we have to do is not cling to it and it itself will pass. If we just release our grasp, our identification, our clinging, um, that unwise, unskillful thought that, you know, uh, or feeling will arise and pass. And then we can see what, what comes next. Uh, William is 
expressing some gratitude and then saying, sometimes it's difficult to discern the motivation for each intention. Is it truly positive? It is it, uh, is it selfishly motivated? Um, thank you, William. This, of course, uh, really like humility and patience and perseverance. What we're being asked to do here, you know, what Buddhism and, and is, uh, is a very advanced skill that we will all develop eventually. Uh, without meditation, it's impossible. But the more that we meditate, uh, the more we'll become aware of what's arising, what the motivation is. We'll see it more and more clearly. But this will take time, time in our abstinence, time in our meditation practice. You know, people who just stay sober and don't train their minds in mindfulness can't do this. Just being sober is not enough. Um, this is a very applicable and you know, practical thing that we're doing here. But it takes time and it takes effort. You know, we're to really see your own mind clearly, to really know what's happening and what the true motivation is behind what's happening absolutely takes time so um just we have to have the humility to be like i'm not always clear uh, and i'm not i don't catch everything all of the time but i'm going to keep trying mark is uh asking uh, could I explain about renunciation, not being about pushing something away, but about pushing something away, but letting it go as it relates to non-healthy attachments you may have in relationships that were developed in addiction. How does that work? So uh, maybe also we're coming back to uh, everything's impermanent. And um, we don't need to push anything away, but we uh, do need to train our heart and our mind to, to let go of that which we're holding on to that's not healthy, that's not serving us, that's not wise. So um, as it relates to non-healthy attachments that we may have in relationships that were developed in addiction, um, the more we become mindful, the more we become present, sober, uh, we become more sensitive, we become more vulnerable. Um, the loving kindness develops, develops a sense of, a greater sense of um, self-esteem, self-worth, self-love, uh, compassion. As we orient towards compassion, uh, we start to care more deeply about ourselves and about each other. Um, as we develop forgiveness. So all of these practices bring us to a place of more um, sensitivity, more vulnerability. And then um, we start to see like, oh, I'm, I'm starting to wake up. I'm recovering. I'm recovering some of this uh, wisdom and compassion that was always here in my heart, but I didn't have access to. Uh, and then we start to say like, oh, but this this relationship doesn't feel good. This is an old uh, behavior. I used to be so uh, tolerant of this kind of mistreatment or abuse or not being appreciated or supported. And now actually I feel less um, 
willing to be in that kind of relationship pattern uh, and it's time to let it go and I feel like this happens somewhat naturally but we also we have to be doing our practices in order to get there we have to be doing the mindfulness we have to be doing the loving kindness and then there'll just be an easier uh, kind of better boundaries boundaries with compassion boundaries with forgiveness boundaries with uh, kindness um, where we'll see and it was a little bit I feel like it's a little bit related to that earlier question from um, who was it from it was from uh, Robert about like when is it enabling uh, and that sometimes when we really start to develop some compassion we'll see that not only is this important for me to let go of so that I'm not being caused harm but it's actually really important for me to put a strong boundary towards this person who's not behaving well so, so that I don't enable them to continue causing harm out of compassion for um, the other person in the dynamic a good boundary so that um, not only can we not suffer so much but also out of generosity and compassion so that they don't keep creating the karma of that um, unskillful behavior so it's not pushing it away it's about relinquishing something that we've been holding on to it's not aversion it's about release Patty says, uh, I like the idea of appreciating the simplest things that you need and then flourishing and appreciating the truest beauty in everything around us, regardless of our circumstances. Appreciate, I, I like that too, the intention to bring gratitude, to bring appreciation also to the simple things, not just the big, big things. Misty says, I, if you have time, I'm doing intermittent fasting for renunciation from food. The night before last, I was laying in bed and I could not stop thinking about cookies. My skin was crawling. My chest was tight. I was legit kicking cookies. I laid there for hours waiting for the feeling to pass. I finally offered myself a little compassion. I cared for my pain. And finally, it mostly passed and I allowed myself to fall asleep. What else can I do when it hurts to not give in to craving? I don't crave drugs or alcohol anymore, but I don't ever see recovering from food addiction. Thank you, Misty, for that. Um, I don't know so much what to say about this because it sounds like... Um, I, I like what you did, right? You you laid there and the craving was present and um, and you didn't react to it. You didn't give in to it. And, the, and it passed and you got to sleep. Um, and I'm not sure uh, that last piece about not ever, uh, I don't ever see recovering from food addiction. Um, I, I've limited experience with this, but I... Uh, I don't, um, you know, my addictions haven't manifested as as food addiction, so I, I can't speak directly to it. There are 
many people using refuge recovery uh, when food is a primary uh, addiction and, and are applying the renunciation, the abstinence, developing their own bottom line behaviors. And what I hear um, is that actually we do, you know, get to a place where um, just like you've gotten to with drugs and alcohol where you don't crave it anymore, well, people get there with the same with the food as well, with the sugar, or the flour or whatever it is that we've become uh, one has become addicted to. I know for myself that when I, uh, I've also done some fasting and um, intermittent fasting and, and done a lot of uh, monastic uh, retreats where you only eat lunch and then you don't eat any dinner. And uh, I've spent many you know years not eating sugar or um, being a vegan, all of these different uh, renunciations that I've practiced. My experience with is that in the beginning, it's very difficult to give up uh, things that we're attached to, but that after some time, for most people, and my experience has been that the cravings do start to subside. That um, I was talking to a, another friend recently who uh, was has spent you know some months in food re recovery and said in the beginning it was quite difficult, but that a couple months in, a few months in. Um, that the renunciation became more mm, normalized and more uh, and that the craving really started to subside. So have faith that uh, you probably will if you practice, you know, that uh, renunciation and stick to those bottom lines in your recovery that likely you will get to a place where it's not so uh, difficult. I saw a pic, uh, Instagram question. No. Oh, there was just a comment on Instagram saying, if you can't appreciate the little things, you can't appreciate the big things either. So maybe I'll leave it there. Um, just one more kind of reflection, which is that understanding cause and effect, understanding reality, the impermanent nature of all things, the unreliable, unsatisfactory, the, the impersonal nature of this human craving organism that we're born into. Uh, understanding that is, is a necessary part, as it says in the chapter, a really uh, seeing, oh, satisfying my cravings all the time is never going to lead to happiness. Renunciation is actually a path to happiness. Letting go of that which is, you know, not putting my hand in the fire. Stop, you know, stop burning ourselves by clinging to this fire that is burning us, the fire of hatred, the fire of, of, of greed, of craving, uh, that renunciation is actually possible. And we set that intention and then the humility that uh, none of us are going to do it perfect, but we'll make progress and we'll get to the place where it becomes more and more natural to our being. Um, this path of recovery, this Buddhist path of awakening uh, is radical. It is asking us to do something that um, is rarely done, to walk this, this path that is rarely walked and to 
relate to our own minds and relate to this world in a way that is uh, incredibly radical. You know, um, we're not just not drinking and using and uh, acting out in our process addictions. We're becoming uh, kind and compassionate and loving and generous. And, you know, we're going way beyond just abstinence. Abstinence is the lowest level of our recovery. First, we have to stop, we have to abstain, and then we have to become wise and compassionate and forgiving and loving and awake. And that that's really what refuge recovery offers. That's what we're all uh, striving for. Our intention is to experience the third truth, which is that recovery is possible, awakening is possible, freedom is possible in this lifetime if we practice some renunciation, if we develop wise intentions through our meditation practice. Uh, we train the heart and the mind. So those are my reflections on refuge recovery for tonight. And uh, next week, we will move on to uh, the next chapter, which is community and communication. Communication, community, um, what is traditionally in Buddhism called wise. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery Path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org, where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online Refuge Recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of refuge recovery groups around the world. Thank you for listening.